Thank you, Veronica. It's great to be here this morning and a joy and a privilege to uh, be together in the house of the Lord. And uh, I don't know about you, but the first words that come to my mind with all that we have seen and heard and participated in together this morning are the words of the psalmist where he says, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Are you glad you have come this morning? Okay, that's about three of you. Are you glad you've come this morning? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. What a joy for us to be here and uh, to share together in what God is doing in people's lives, to be able to uh, sing together and praise God together and uh, to pray together and just rejoice in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Today we look in John chapter 2 as read and uh, we discover here as we're journeying together through the gospel of John, uh, Jesus' first miracle. Now, during his earthly ministry, as you read through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you discover that recorded in the four Gospels are 35 miracles that Jesus performed while he was in his earthly ministry. Certainly, there would be many more that are not recorded for us. And we know that from the end of the Gospel of John. First of all, in John 20, verse 30, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then the last verse of John's Gospel, verse 25 of chapter 21, it says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that have ever been written. So obviously, on top of what's recorded for us in the, uh, the four Gospels, Jesus did much more by way of ministry, much more by way of miracles. In John's Gospel, of those 35 miracles, we have eight that are recorded for us. Uh, seven of them are exclusively recorded in John's Gospel. One of them is shared between John's gospel as well as Matthew and Mark. That's the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and then Peter joining him as he walked on the water. By the way, a wonderful resource, and I have a copy of it if you want to look at it afterwards, as you study through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, is called A Harmony of the Gospels. And not only does it put the life and ministry of Jesus in chronological order, it also puts, when there's parallel passages where, uh, for example, the, the walking on the water where both um, Matthew, Mark, and John record that miracle, it lists them side by side. Because God used these men, different men, different personalities, different backgrounds, and he wrote, he, by God the Holy Spirit, inspired them what to write, but they bring different aspects of the life of Christ. And so when you're able to put it side by side, you realize everything that was involved in particular instances in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just an incredible resource for you to use when you're studying the life of Christ. So what is a miracle? Uh, as soon as Pastor Gary uh, asked me to preach through this particular passage, my mind went back to first year systematic theology class. For me, that was in uh, 1978. And uh, I remember one of the first things we talked about in that theology class was the miracles that the Bible records for us. And here is a, a simple definition of a miracle that I memorized way back in 1978. It says this, a miracle is a supernatural manifestation of the power of God in the physical realm, the physical world, that leaves the beholder in a state of wonderment. In other words, it's only something that God could do. 
Think back in your mind for a moment in the Old Testament, and there are dozens of miracles that God performed in the Old Testament. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. Could any person do that? No, only God could perform that miracle. The, the, the backing up of the Jordan River as with Joshua, the people were there again to, to cross into the promised land and, and God backed up that river many, many miles and the people were able to walk through on dry land. Think of the, the battle of Jericho. How did those walls come down? The faith of God's people, absolutely, and responding in obedience what God had told them to do, but what did they do? They shouted, they blew trumpets, and what happened? The walls came a-tumbling down, if you remember from Sunday school. Only God can do miracles. Think of the miracles of Jesus that you're aware of. Uh, My mind came to 5,000 men plus women and children who were fed with five loaves and two fish. Again, the value of of putting the the story of that miracle side by side from each of the gospel writers, because two of them just say 5,000 men, but one writer says 5,000 men plus women and children. We're not sure how many were fed that day with five loaves and two fish, but only God could do that. Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. God alone can do miracles. Yes, God can use people to help facilitate a miracle, but the work is God's alone and all glory goes where? To God alone. I remember my first experience with uh, seeing a a miracle up front and close. And uh, it was a a gentleman whose little boy rode the bus to Sunday school. And I was serving as an intern in the church at that point, and we heard through this little boy that uh, his dad had some rare eye disease that was causing him to lose his sight. And uh, the pastor of the church, once we heard the story from this little boy, reached out to the family. They didn't come to church. They didn't know Jesus. But the pastor reached out and said, We've, your little boy shared with us what's happening in your life. Would you be okay if we as, as leaders in the church came over and, and we prayed with you and your wife and your children? And he said, yes, I would really appreciate that. It was a difficult time in his life and in the life of his family. And the leaders of the church went over and, and prayed. And the gentleman went back to the doctor that next week. And he no longer was losing his vision and he could see clearly. Now, was God's people involved in that miracle? Absolutely. But I remember the impression that left on my life. You know, I've read about miracles, but then to actually witness one that happened, and this man, his sight was completely restored. Only God can do that. God alone gets the glory. And this morning, we want to look into this miracle of Jesus, the first one he performed during his earthly ministry in John chapter 2. And I want us to see three things. There's many things we can learn about Jesus in these verses, but I just want to touch on three this morning. And then how those three things that we learn about Jesus apply to us today if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one is this. We learn that Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man. We see his deity and we see his humanity. And as we learned early on in the Gospel of John, where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on in John chapter 1, it says, the Word became flesh. 
Listen to these verses from Philippians chapter 2. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. John here mentions it was on the third day. Again, as you look chronologically in the life of Christ, this was the third day after the calling of Philip and Nathanael back in the end of John chapter 1. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to, to attend a wedding feast. A wedding feast in ancient times often lasted for seven days. It was an incredible time of celebration for family and for friends. And Jesus states in verse 11 that this miracle of turning water into wine was a manifestation or a revelation of Jesus' glory. As God in the flesh, Jesus revealed the glory of God. In verse 6, we read that uh, there were six large jars of water nearby. Uh, once filled, these jars would be used for ceremonial washing both before and after meals. And each one uh, held about 75 to 115 liters of water. These were large jars. And Jesus simply tells the servants, fill each jar, draw out some of the water, and then take it to the master of the wedding feast. Now the master of the feast uh, did not know where this water had come from, this water that had been turned into wine. To drink water that had been set aside for ceremonial washing would have been unthinkable for a Jew. And somewhere between the filling of the jars and the banquet master tasting it, the water had become fine wine. You know, when you read about many of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, uh, he says or he does something that, that people either saw or heard from Jesus. Here we don't know exactly what Jesus did. We simply have the words, his instructions to tell the servants, Fill, it with, fill those jars with water, draw some out of those jars, and take it to the master of the feast. Only God in the flesh, without speaking or action, could make water turn into fine wine. I don't know about you, but I read that, and that's absolutely amazing. Only God can do that. We don't know when it exactly became wine. We're not told that. With some of the miracles, because Jesus did actually did something or said something, we, we just see right away what happened. But somewhere between the jars being filled, the water being drawn out, and the master receiving it, it had become fine wine. In verse 11, John uses the, the words miraculous signs. And when we read that about Christ, and he did many miraculous signs, it really points us to the significance of the action rather than the marvel of the action. Often with miracles, we get caught up in how marvelous it is, and, and it's good to, to marvel at what Jesus did, but it's also important to think through the significance of this action. See, as God in the flesh, Jesus clearly signified and displayed the glory of God. People in that day would have been thinking even in their minds as I was reading and preparing for this that some probably were even thinking that now the significance 
of Christianity would be far greater than legalistic Judaism. Nothing wrong with ceremonial washing, but it became very legalistic for the Jews. And now this signifies only what God can do in changing our lives. This best wine miracle. Christianity would be an advance over legalistic Judaism. Let me ask you this morning, as I ask myself, in what ways does my life as a follower of Jesus glory, display the glory of God? Or as I'm here today, am I more interested in what the world deems to be glorious? If you go back and read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's Solomon in his life and experience, a man who had a heart for God, but later on in life left God out of his decisions. Solomon there expresses in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that, that really his life had become meaningless and empty without God. And he tried everything to find satisfaction. He tried wine, he tried women, he tried wealth, he tried hard work, he tried wisdom. Uh, on their own, those things are they're not bad things. But when you remove them from the parameters of what God has set down for us in his word, then those things become the things of the world and become absolutely meaningless. Solomon failed to glorify God with his life. And for any of us here today, that can happen to us as well. So as Jesus, as God in the flesh, glorified God, what can we do to glorify God? Let me just share a few things. Number one, we glorify God by obedience to his word. Obedience to his word. If you're here this morning and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to be like Helena. And you need to give a public testimony of your faith and you need to be baptized. The elders at this church will fill that tank over and over and over again. Might get chilly if you're last in line, but they will make sure it's warm when to start. I just encourage you, take that step of obedience. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior many, many years ago, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to get baptized now. My challenge to you is just do it. Number one, it's obedience to the truth of God's word. And God blesses obedience. But it's also an example to your children, to your grandchildren, to your church family, to your unsaved family, if you are willing to get up and give an unashamed, open confession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also show our obedience to the word, not only in being baptized, but with serving, in giving of our time, our talents, and our resources for the glory of God, and giving them to God's church to be used for the sake of the gospel. Do you know everything you have is God's anyways? Because he's given it to you whether it's your financial resources, your physical resources, the talents, the gifts, the abilities that you have as a follower of Jesus, it's all for the glory of God. And he's given it to you and entrusted it to you to be used. Do we get to enjoy our physical resources and our financial resources? Absolutely. But they're not just for us. They're to be given to the Lord, to be used for the sake of the gospel. As I shared on January 1st, I'm here today because people invested money to get buses on the road so kids could get to Sunday school. We don't do that today. There's other ways we can reach out with the gospel, but that worked in that day. 
And I'm so thankful that people gave their financial resources so those buses could be on the road and I could get to Sunday school and hear about Jesus. How else do we glorify God? We glorify God by a biblical commitment to a local church. Uh, there's many wonderful metaphors for the church in the New Testament. One of my favorites is the church is the bride of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And by the way, those who are involved in leadership in our church, they have the incredible privilege of helping get this local expression of the bride of Christ ready for that glorious day when the bridegroom will return. But we are the bride of Christ, a local expression of the bride of Christ. Is every bride perfect? I've been to enough weddings and enough, especially wedding rehearsals, to discover there's no perfect bride. <laughs> Usually comes out at the rehearsal, not on the wedding day. <laughs> and there's no perfect local expression of the bride of Christ. Guess what? I'm a part of this one, so it's not perfect, I can tell you that. Pastor Gary's a part of it, and it's not perfect. <laughs> and you're a part of it and a commitment to a local expression of the bride of Christ is so important for us. Local expressions of the bride of Christ are made up of sinners who've been saved by God's grace and who are continually being transformed into the image of Christ, striving to become what? All for Christ. That's our vision, by the way, because we're not there yet. But that's what we want to become as a church. All of us being all for Christ. I do a workshop on outreach and I share four reasons why it, the church is absolutely vital in the building of God's kingdom. And the number one reason I share is this, that the church provides a home for children of God. Did you know that you're gonna be a child of God for the rest of your life? You'll be an adult when you get to heaven. You'll know everything. Everything will be fully known. But in the meantime, you're a child of God. Even if you're here this morning and you're 85 years of age, you're a child of God. And I would hope that as a child of God, you would have the curiosity of little children, always wanting to know more and grow more and learn more about this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would want to dig in and have that curiosity all the time to keep growing and keep learning. I think we would all agree here this morning that just as every child needs a good home to grow up in, every child of God needs a good home church to grow up in. I had that when I was a teenager and a young adult, and because I didn't come from a, a family who knew the Lord, the people in that church became my spiritual parents. I am so thankful for those people. And then churches we've served in, in many ways, became our home church. And now I am delighted to say that this is our home church. It's not a perfect church, but I can tell you this, if you don't have a home church, and you've been checking out Wallenstein for a while, I would encourage you this would be a great place to call home. Because as a child of God, you need a good home church to grow up in. I so value and respect our elders. And a few weeks ago, introducing to us uh, the family commitment for Wallenstein Bible Chapel. I encourage you, if you haven't done so already, read it through. Go back and listen to pa Pastor Gary's sermon from January the 8th as he walked us through it. Ask your questions pray, and if you agree, sign the commitment. Just as an aside, as I think about glorifying God by commitment to a local church, I just want to pause for a moment. I want to commend you as parents today. 
If you have young children or teenagers in your home, I commend you for your faithfulness in bringing your teenagers and your children to God's house. God bless you for doing that. And God will honor that. Our experience over 25 years that we served in churches, we served longer, but 25 years of our pastoral ministry, Veronica and I were involved with youth and young adults. And I can tell you this, from all those years, those parents that made Sunday church and weekly youth groups a priority often saw their teens follow God when they become young adults. Now, there wasn't 100%, but the percentage went way up when you saw parents who were so faithful in bringing their children and their teens to the house of the Lord and getting them to youth group. Those who didn't often saw their teens follow the ways of the world. And by the way, in our experience over many years, and we had many, uh, especially guys who played hockey, I don't think any of them made the NHL. <laughs> and I would just say to you, don't, there's lots of good things for our kids to be involved in and our teenagers, but don't allow any of those things to take away from being in the house of the Lord on a regular basis and getting your kids to children's ministry and to youth group on a weekly basis. Maybe someone from here will make the NHL one day. That would be wonderful. That faithfulness is so, so important. And I loved it, especially when we were serving with teenagers and as they went through the youth group and then become young adults, we saw so many of them who, as young adults, honored their parents. I thought, you know what? When we had little children at the time, I thought that's what I want one day. And I'm thankful to say we have that. Uh, it's such a blessing to our lives that our kids honor us. And you know what? That all the other commands don't end, right? When you become an adult, why would that one end? It carries on. Obviously, it's different in relationship. And you can honor your parents uh, out of duty, or you can do it out of devotion. You have to do it. It's a biblical command. But isn't it far better to do it out of devotion rather than just because you have to? And that devotion comes as a result of relationship. Thirdly, we glorify God by giving all of me for all of my life. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, which is your act of spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that you may be able to test and approve the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. See, worship is not just Sunday mornings. It's important. But it's all of me for all of my life. It's all week long, striving to be that living sacrifice, daily recommitting to God my life for that day. What's the problem with a living sacrifice? It keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. That's why they killed the sacrifice and then put it on the altar. But we are called to be living sacrifices, all of me for all of my life. Number two, we learn that Jesus cares about practical needs. He cares about practical needs. By turning water into wine, Jesus met a practical and important need for the guests and the family members of the bride and the groom. To fail in proper hospitality was considered a major offense. This was more than an embarrassment. Uh, the family had, to, had an obligation to provide a feast that met the socially required standards of that day. 
They didn't have the convenience that if for some reason your oven wasn't working that you could run down to Anna Mays and get a bucket of chicken to bring home. They didn't have that. They were dependent on day-to-day provision and day-to-day preparation. They didn't have the variety of beverages that we enjoy today. People drank water or they drank wine. You know, when I think about the Lord Jesus and his caring about needs, practical needs, listen to Matthew chapter 9. It says this, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. Again, we don't know the specific miracles that he did here, but obviously he did many. When Jesus saw the crowds, what does it say? He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cared deeply about the the needs in people's lives, and he demonstrated that throughout his life and his ministry. You can look at the early church in in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts chapter 4, the way God used them to meet practical needs. Another reason I share in that workshop why the church is so vital in the building of God's kingdom, the third one is this, the church provides a place of help for those who have needs. It starts inside the church and then it, it spills out to the world all around. It's got to start within the church. And that example is used by God to impact the communities around us with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read back in church history, this is not recorded in your Bible, but early in church history, and you you read what was written, and the world saw the church. They saw the love that was being demonstrated within the family of God. And do you know what their response was? Do you know what the catchphrase was from the world as they described the early church? It said this, my, how those Christians love one another. My, how those Christians love one another. What an incredible testimony of the world when they saw the early church. Is that how the world would describe us today? James 4, verse 17 is a very challenging verse and it's very personal. It says this, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So when God presents a need to you this week and you know you have the opportunity to do something good to help meet that need, if you don't do it, to you it is sin. I might not be presented with that same need. I remember preaching as a guest preacher one time in a church and and a young man who was uh, from that church was heading out on a missions trip the following weekend. And he was still, as he shared his testimony in the service and as they prayed for him, he shared that he was $800 short of what he needed to go on that trip. And he needed to have it by the following Saturday. And so lovingly, they, they prayed for him in that service. And then I got up to preach and as a guest preacher, you can get away with some things. I said, you know what, folks? I said, before I preach, uh, I believe that $800 is already sitting here in the congregation. And I said, I'll give the first $20 and I want 39 others of you to join me in helping meet that practical need. By the time he left that morning, he had over $1,000 in his hands. Yes, it's good to pray for that need, but again, the good you ought to do, if you don't do it, to you it is sin. What an example that is to our teens and our, our children. 
when it comes to doing good and helping meet needs. I would always rather err on the side of doing too much than doing too little. We served in a downtown city church, and uh, when you serve downtown in a city church, there's always people knocking on the door, people with great needs. And we would take turns as pastors going down the three flights of stairs to get to the door when people rang the buzzer, and you know, you would talk with people, and they had needs. Thankfully, as a church, we had resource. We had gift cards for the grocery store down the street. There was Tim Hortons right across the road, and we had gift cards. We didn't give out cash, but we were able to give out and help provide to meet needs. And that church on Tuesday night would provide a full meal for anywhere from 100 to 150 people who had needs. Everything was donated. It was just amazing to see people. And through that, the gospel went forward, and people heard the good news, and many came to Christ. You see, as a church, as I think about the value of the church, number four is this, the church is a place of hope for the world. It's God's plan for reaching the world is through the church. And we are entrusted as the church to get the gospel out to a lost world. And we do that through speaking the gospel, but also living and doing good works when it comes to the gospel. So let's think creatively. What about our church what can we be doing to meet needs in the communities around us, including Wallenstein? And we know many of us come from different communities. What can we be doing as a church? And ask God for creativity. No one church can meet every need in every community. But every church can do something to help meet needs in the communities around us. I loved a church when I heard their story that... Uh, they realized through one of the census reports, by the way, you can find out a lot about your community by looking at the census. Your tax dollars have already paid for it, so why not use it? And a church can learn a lot about the communities around them. And this one church realized that there was a large percentage of single family homes in their community. And 90, it didn't break down between whether it's single dad or a single mom, but we know probably 85 to 90% of those homes are single moms. So do you know what this church decided to do? They put on a beautiful spa morning, including a gourmet lunch for single moms. How many single moms are going to go to the spa? It's not a priority. So they put on a full morning. They advertised it in the local newspaper. They had a cap of 100 who could come. Let me tell you, it filled up every year. And as those moms came, pulled up, and obviously for a single mom, they can go to a spa morning, but what else do they need? They've got little ones. So they needed childcare. So they would put on a full morning program for those children as well make sure they were well cared for while these moms were enjoying the spa time as they pulled up under the canopy of the church to to uh, you know drop off their kids they had people willing to do valet parking teenagers love to do valet parking <laughs> not a good idea <laughs> but they would say to every mom as they helped them with permission getting the little ones out of the car they would say if it's okay with you we would like to fully detail your vehicle while you're enjoying the spa morning. And they had a group of people. How many single moms are gonna spend money on detailing a vehicle inside and out? And they also said, and again, ask permission, if your vehicle needs an oil change, we have people who are qualified to do that right here in the church parking lot. What a testimony to these dear women as they strive to, to raise up these little ones by themselves. What a meeting of a practical need and God used it for the gospel. 
one church we served in, and they had started this years before, uh, they realized as they ran a vacation Bible school in their community and had about 50 children come, it was well done. VBS runs from nine till noon. They discovered again through the census that 90% of the homes in that community, both parents worked outside the home. So VBS for most of them was kind of useless. Why? They needed full day childcare. So they started with two weeks of full day day camp. At one point, they got up to seven full weeks of day camp. They saw 1,100 children. This is a church of 200. 1,100 children come through the doors over that seven-week period. 70% of them came from homes that did not know Christ. If you wanted your wedding that summer at the church, because the sanctuary was the big enough room for all those kids to pile into, if you wanted a Hawaiian theme for your wedding, no problem. We weren't taking it down. If you wanted a, you know, a safari theme, no problem. Let's just say nobody had their wedding at the church during those summer months. But what an incredible opportunity of meeting needs. The church is the hope of the world. See, Jesus was God in the flesh. Number two, Jesus cared about practical needs. Number three, Jesus understood and obeyed God the Father's perfect timeline and God the Father's priorities for his earthly ministry. We see back there in, in verse number four, after Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and tells him about this situation, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour, my time has not yet come. Jesus knew that he was one day moving towards a destiny for which he had come to earth. You see, our world cares about its own timelines and priorities. Jesus modeled for us and for his disciples what it means to live out God's timeline and God's priorities. This is where we need to pause, and even in this story, we see the sovereignty of God. What's the sovereignty of God? It's that God rules and reigns over absolutely everything that happens in our world, that happens in our personal lives, it happens in the lives of our families and happens in the life of God's church. Even when those things are wonderful things, even when those things are difficult things, we have to put our faith and trust in the sovereignty of God that he knows exactly what he is doing. None of us are here at WBC by accident. It's the sovereignty of God. God brought each of us here I'm preaching today because God knew beforehand he wanted me to preach and preach this particular passage. God knew that he wanted Pastor Gary to preach the last four Sundays. That's all in the hands of God. God knew that our senior youth who are at the retreat this weekend are there because it's exactly where God wanted them to be so they can hear the messages that God wanted them to hear. You see, we trust in the sovereignty of of God. I'll be very honest with you, there's times in my life I struggle with the sovereignty of God. Do you? I do. Even this past week, a little bit, I've struggled with the sovereignty of God. And back in December at our school with a situation that was very challenging, I struggled with the sovereignty of God. What's God doing in all of this? And ultimately, we do see God at work. I love Romans 5, verse 6. It says this, you see at what? Just the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. In John 2, it wasn't Jesus' time to fully reveal himself, who he was, and what he had come to do. 
But we do know as you read through the Gospels about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that was God's perfect time. And as Paul says in Romans 5, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Through his death on the cross, provided the means of forgiveness of sin and the guarantee of our salvation. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, as you listen to Helena's wonderful testimony, as you've listened to the word of God, today can be the day of salvation for you. As John says towards the end of his book there in John chapter 20, you know, he did many other things, but these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Today, you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He died on the cross to pay the full price for all of your sin. He loved you so much. And today can be a day of salvation for you. And the wonderful thing is when we come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, that, that moment we are saved from the penalty of sin because Jesus Christ paid the penalty on our behalf. But not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, when we come to Christ, as we live for Christ, we are also saved from the power of sin. We heard this in our chapel this week. We're saved from the power of sin because we still live in a sinful world and Satan absolutely hates us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will face temptation. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We're saved from the power of sin and one day we will all be saved from the presence of sin. When we enter into eternity, there will be no sin. We won't have to struggle with that any longer. A wonderful resource if you haven't yet come to Christ or recently you've come to Christ or actually for every believer is a little booklet called 33 Things That Happen at the Moment of Salvation. I didn't know all these three. I only knew two. <laughs> but at the moment we're saved, there's 33 things that happen to us according to the truth of God's word. It's a great little resource. This is an extra first come, first served after the service. But you can go online, Sun Life Ministries, S-O-N, lifeministries.com it cost about three dollars you can order one actually in my last church we ordered them for everybody in our church family because we wanted this in their hands to realize how much we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ note verse 11 the disciples put their faith in Jesus it was a personal response and you and I today need to make a personal response and not only do we see God's perfect timing and God's sovereignty in your salvation and in my salvation, we also see God, the sovereignty of God when it comes to prayer. And God delights in, in responding to the prayers of his people. I've discovered that there's five different answers to prayer. There's definite. We all like that one, right? God says yes. There's denied. We don't like that one so much. It's when God says no. There's delayed. God says, wait. That one's hard for us too. But there's also different, where God answers, but not in a way we were expecting. Or sometimes God answers by degrees. He just gives us a little bit of the answer at a time, and eventually we get the big picture. As we think about prayer and the sovereignty of God, I encourage you, pray earnestly for the children and the teens and the young adults at our church. Pray that they will have hearts turned and tuned to the heart of God. That as parents, we would set that example. Pray they will trust in the sovereignty 
of God for their lives and trust in God's perfect timing and always seek to follow the wisdom of God and obey the will of God, which are always found in the word of God. Teens and young adults, get baptized if you haven't done so already. Consider your life and where God may be leading you and even investing one year of your life in Bible college. I don't share that because I work at a Bible college. I've shared it for years. It'll give you a solid foundation before university or college or wherever God might be taking you. And as parents, talk to your kids about that investment. And by the way, I do have a good school I could recommend to you if needed. It's so vital. My heart and prayer is that our teens and our young adults and our children would go on with the Lord, that they would desire to, to stay strong and go long. And again, as parents, grandparents, significant influence in their lives, absolutely. But they need to decide for themselves. But do all you can by way of example in front of them. You live out the sovereignty of God. And even when you're struggling with it, don't be afraid to share that with your kids. It's okay, because then they can pray for you. And trust God through prayer that God will work in amazing ways. And honestly, I'm sure here today we could have story after story after story of how God in his sovereignty has worked in response to prayer in our own personal lives. Let me just share one very quickly with us personally. As uh, we got married, we thought maybe after three years it'd be great to have kids. Uh, it wasn't happening. <laughs> and so the pastor we were serving with, him and his wife, they committed to pray for us. And six years into our marriage, God brought our son along. And then we thought two years would be kind of nice in between. Well, again, we had to pray, and God made us wait three and a half years, and our daughter was born. Going through that experience did two things for us. One, it helps you understand people who are going through the same struggle, and what to say and what not to say. But it also helped us to pray for others, and as I had shared that with others, others asked us to pray for them as young couples. So we prayed for one couple and God blessed them with twins. And we prayed for another couple. They had a little boy and they thought we'd like to have another child. And a couple of years later, guess what happened? They had triplets. <laughs> Nobody has asked us to pray since that time. <laughs> the sovereignty of God in every aspect of our lives. What's your response this morning? Your personal response? Will you acknowledge that Jesus was God in the flesh and he became the sinless son of God who sacrificed on the cross, paid the full price for all your sin? Will you strive to do all that you can to meet practical needs in our church and in our community? And will you trust in the sovereignty of God even when you do not understand what he is doing or know his perfect timing? God bless you.